So it was probably a mistake, but we decided when at the end of my time in seminary in Dallas that we were going to put everything we owned in a U-Haul and we we're going to drive it home to Ohio before we moved to the Bahamas. Some of you know that that's a part of our story. And we literally had everything that we owned in this U-Haul and we were pulling it with a Dodge Stratus, which I probably hadn't paid enough attention to the towing capacity and things because of the fact that we'd just gone to this great party. It was very kind. The church that we were serving at had given us a going away party in Texas there. And we, we were staying for a couple of weeks with friends that lived in this really nice high-end luxury apartment that was right in downtown Dallas. And we were a little embarrassed by our U-Haul uh, you know, setup. And so we drove to the top of this building. And as we're driving up to the top to park in the parking garage, Allie says to me, hey, Sean, did you notice that since you've given the car an oil change that there's been a little unusual odor with the car? I don't know. And then we noticed that there was smoke coming out of the front of the car. And then we could actually see flames in the front of the car. That's, that's not good, right? And so I did all of the wrong things. Well, the first thing we did was probably the right thing, and that was we called 911. And so uh, you can hear the fire trucks in the distance. In fact, it was such a big deal that they ended up having four different ladder trucks come. It was on the news. It was crazy. But uh, as, the, as they're coming, we ended up doing this like, like bucket brigade from my friend's apartment, and they're doing like Dixie cups of water. So I lift up the hood, which is probably not the right thing to do. Now it's the flames just have grown uh, exponentially. Now we're taking these cups of water and Tupperware bowls of water, and we're chucking them on top of this fire. And you know what happens every time we do this is that the flames just get bigger. So somebody gets the idea, all right, we've got one of those household fire extinguishers. That's going to fix it, right? And so I get in there and it just gets bigger again. And, and it would be just like if we were at home and there was an, a, an oil fire, a fire that is happening where, uh, where the oil's caught on fire and you just take water and you dump it on there. You know what happens, right? Have you experienced this before? That it just spreads it all out. Well, in the early church, as we're studying the book of Acts, that's exactly what happened as the early church underwent some severe persecution. In fact, what we're going to see from God's word today is that we're going to see that there was a ravaging that was taking place. That's the word that, that God's word uses, a ravaging of the church, a great persecution. And you would assume when you first read these words at that last week, uh, as we studied God's word together, Stephen, the first martyr who, who goes before this, this group of people that put him to death because of his outspoken faith, that you might assume that these Christians are going to shrink back, that they're, they're going to move back away from having a profound work of God amongst them. But the exact opposite happens. In fact, what happens is that under this persecution, what feels really bad unexpectedly turns into a great blessing. And what we see happening in Acts chapter 8 in these first eight verses is we see the church of God move geographically from Jerusalem because of the persecution that they were undergoing. And what we're going to see is that it's going to grow. And this morning, I want to encourage you. I'm so glad to get to see you. I'm glad to worship with you, to celebrate God's goodness together. And today we get to celebrate something that's so important for many of us to hear this morning. And that is sometimes what happens to appear to be very bad on the surface can turn out to be a huge blessing. It can turn out to be something 
very good. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 8 in these first few verses. You guys might remember last week we talked about Saul and we talked about the fact that here he was a man who was not only condoning the death of Stephen, but he was the guy who, it's, it's kind of brutal, but he was the guy that was holding the outer garments of those who were doing this horrific act so that the blood and the, the, the results of what was happening wouldn't get on their cloaks. It's just this, this terrible image, right? And as we pick back up, if you have your Bibles, turn them on with me to Acts chapter 8. And, and as we pick back up in verse 1, what we see in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 is that Saul is back on the scene. Ironically, the man who later is going to, after his conversion, become Paul, the greatest missionary to ever walk the earth. Here he is, a man who's with everything that he has persecuting the church. And his desire is to put out the flame of the gospel. His desire is to silence it, to squelch it, to stop it. In our experience with that flame, as the car's going, it's got everything that we own in it. The, the firemen come, uh, one of them climbs this giant ladder to come up, another drives up in a truck, he steps out of the car, takes out the right kind of extinguisher, shoots it, and leaves, because it's just done. It's all, it was awesome. The fire's completely out. Well, well, in that context, he knew exactly what needed to happen. It needed to be squelched. Well, what Paul's trying to do here is he's trying, Saul's trying to squelch the movement of the gospel. It totally doesn't work. For some of us today, as we hear this message, we need to be reminded of the fact that even if it doesn't feel like it, that God is still at work. It would have felt terrible to have been a part of the early church. It says this at this time in history, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And Saul, who we learned last week, was he considered a young man, relatively around 33 years old, something like that. And he said, says that he approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. This was a horrible time in the early church. Later in verse three of chapter eight, it says, but Saul was, this is the only time this word is ever used in the New Testament. Um, it is, he says, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and he committed them to prison. Later, Paul would say, in his own words, that later in, in Acts chapter 22, verse 4, it says that he persecuted this way. That was another name for the, gospel, the Christian church, the way. He says he persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. To the Galatians, he explained, for you later in, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, to the Galatians, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. The, the, Saul, in this context, attempted to persecute the church in such a way that it would be silenced, but it didn't work at all. In fact, the things that he did as he attacked the church violently and rigorously, actually what it did was it, just like that oil fire, it, when it is attempted to be stopped, it just spread it out. And what we get to see is a movement of God that spreads beyond Jerusalem into Israel in a way that, that the church actually takes root and, and amazing things happen for the sake of the gospel. So, so it comes to the first point this morning, and that is the brutal attack on the church 
ultimately led to an unexpected spreading of the gospel around the world. It, it would have been shocking. But what happened was that the gospel was spread. If you pick back up with me in chapter 8, verse 1, the second part of that verse, it says, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then later in verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Earlier, I read this word ravaging. Mentioned that it's only used here in the New Testament, but it's used in the Old Testament to describe a very specific act that was common. And it was, it was describing a bull that was going through a vineyard and just wreaking havoc on the vineyard. And I heard a, um, a, a professional vine dresser talk about how detailed and careful they have to be trimming vines and how precise it is to keep it alive. And here, this description is just a, a big old board just ripping apart the vines. That's what the Apostle Paul is, before, as, the, as Saul persecuting the church, was doing on behalf of this desire to try to squelch the work of God. But it wasn't going to work. In fact, this, this is a, a beautiful image if you look at this map. The, the Greek word here that's used is dispersion. And, and this is it translated in English as scattered. So as they scatter, you know what happens? It's just like a farmer who sows seed. We don't do this very often. But, but in the old days, when they talk about sowing the seed, they're, they're launching these seeds up. And what happens as it spreads in a region north to south that was about the same size as Ohio that this region, the gospel is going to spread. And it's going to take on this movement out of Jerusalem now. As it, as it radiates out, the, the gospel is going to take root. And next week, we're going to see that it takes root. Two weeks from now, we're going to see that it takes root in, in an, an Ethiopian eunuch that, that ends up really spreading to the ends of the earth. So at the beginning of Acts, in Acts 1.8, when we're told by the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be my witnesses. Do you remember what he said? He said, to Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're just seeing this take place. And the reason it's taking place is because of something really bad that was happening. I want to encourage you this morning that there's a feeling that we can have about what's going on. I've had so many different versions of people sharing with me how discouraged they've been through what we've gone through over the last few months. It's been terrible. It's been painful. It's been difficult. But one of the things that I believe about the sovereignty of the God that I serve is that even in the midst of something that's tremendously difficult, that he can still do something wonderful through it. And I actually believe that he's doing that. So that, that main idea that sometimes what appears to be very bad can turn out to be something very good. We see this playing out in what was happening in the early church. Under this relentless attack, they didn't even closely imply that they were going to stop. But instead, what they're doing is they're seeing the gospel spread. And this leads to the second point that flows right out of the text. I think it's really encouraging is that sometimes it's good to make a stand regardless of the consequences. Here, we notice if, we're, if we look carefully at the, what the disciples choose to do is that the disciples, even though the rest of the church is spreading out, and, and it, again, it would have been a horrible time. People leaving their homes, leaving what's familiar. They're changing their geography. It would have been a very difficult time in the early church. The disciples decided, I believe because it was too important not to do so, that the disciples chose to stay in Jerusalem at this time. And here, when Stephen stands up and he goes, it ends up, ends up being martyred for the sake of the gospel, what the disciples do is they collect his body 
and they mourn him publicly. I want to just catch this for a moment. Something that's really encouraging to me. If you if you'll notice with me in chapter eight, at the beginning of verse one, towards the end of it, it says, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then later in verse two, it says, devote men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. Church, I'm really encouraged by the fact that the shortest verse in God's word is actually a reference to Jesus. And it is that Jesus wept. And it's encouraging for me that, that even in the midst of knowledge that Stephen was in the very presence of God, that he had this glimpse and we, we get to see this in God's word, that there was still an element of lamenting and mourning the loss of his life. And here they're doing something that was an act of rebellion during that time period. We're told in the Mishnah, the Jewish oral tradition of the day, that it was illegal for a person to stand up and to mourn over someone who had been stoned to death. And so here the disciples stand up, they mourn the life of Stephen and the way that the scripture portrays it, I believe that there are other people, maybe other Jews, maybe other hidden Christians that, that are joining in, in the mourning of the loss of this man's life. And they're, they're doing something that was too important to not do. I love the boldness of the disciples here. I love that they chose to stick through these disciples would have been the very men that had sat at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, except for the one who had been replaced after Judas had, had committed suicide. And here, what we see from these men is, is that they were willing to courageously approach this. They remembered something that's pretty important to us. I think it's important to me right now to remember. And that is they remembered that they were on mission that God had called them to not be a part of a cruise ship that was comfortable sailing through. The, it's kind of bad to bring up cruise ships right now, right? Nobody wants to be on one of those. But, but, but it's, that, it's not that we're in a comfortable setting where we're just trying to make life as easy as possible for us. But the disciples had a perspective that understood that they were on a battleship, that they were on mission, that they had something that was essential for them to participate in. And here, what we see from God's word is that that they were battle operational. They're ready. This was wartime. They were ready to respond. And, and I believe at their heart's level, where they were responding to this, that they could relate to something that Joseph said when he said, after he'd been sold into slavery, rejected by his family, abandoned, left for dead, that he said these words at the end of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You remember them, I hope. I hope they're encouraging. I hope you memorize them. They mean a lot to me. This is what man intended for evil, God allowed for good. Here in their discouragement, God is still at work allowing the church to be developed and to see it grow and to see God's handiwork moving forward, following the example of Stephen, a man who was all in, who was willing to sacrifice everything for the message of the gospel and like water on a grease fire. What ends up happening is the church grows the church spreads. God, God is on the move. It doesn't, it doesn't slow down the movement of the gospel at all, but instead it just advances it. It spreads it. And, and, and it's important as we look at these last four verses of chapter eight, verse five through eight, I want you to catch this. This is so powerful that through the gospel, what we see is the once rejected and despised Samaritans become not just acquaintances, but they actually become family. 
That's what we get to see in front of us. Now, when I say rejected and despised, it's important for us to understand just how radical of a thing this would have been. If you grew up in Israel during this time as a Jewish person, you would have intentionally chosen most of the time when you traveled north to south in Israel, that you'd have chosen to take the long route to avoid Samaria altogether. You despised those individuals. There was so much prejudice at that time period that one of the common statements was, not only God, thank you for not making me a Samaritan, but it was when it comes to the resurrection, God, please don't let any Samaritans be a part of it. In other words, I don't want to be in heaven with them. Can you imagine? Now, these are religious people who are making this massive statement about the fact that those people, they despise. In fact, there was a moment with the Lord Jesus Christ with James and John, where the guys were so frustrated with the Samaritans that it literally says in the text, in the end of Matthew, it says that they wanted to call down fire from above in judgment upon the Samaritans. They, they wanted them to, to be completely eradicated and destroyed. Now, when Jesus walked the earth, what we know in the book of John is that Jesus would have gone straight. He went straight through Samaria, interacted with the woman at the well. And I can't help but wonder at this time in history, as Philip is going to be an ambassador for the gospel there, that, that it, it might have been that the very work of the Lord Jesus Christ had softened the soil for them to hear this message. And when Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we said, you will be my witnesses to, to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The people who heard that originally would have been shocked. To Samaria? Are you kidding me? We don't like those people. They're not like us. They're half-breeds. They have a different temple. They've, made, they've compromised their faith. We have nothing to do with those people. And then what we see, I love this. If you have your Bibles, look with me in verse 5 of chapter 8. It says, Philip. Now, Philip was a man who we saw his name earlier when Stephen was chosen as one of the individuals that was given the privilege of caring for the widows in Jerusalem, the Hellenist. Hellenistic widows, the ones that were felt overlooked. And here, he, Philip was a man that God had chosen to do this. He was of high character. He was a godly man. And here, like Stephen, he's going to be used by God, kind of an ordinary guy. He's going to be used by God to do something extraordinary. It says this in verse 4. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him, they saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. What Philip did was that he, overcome, he overcame something that was a part of his culture and ended up seeing them as being potential members of the family of God. Through the work of the gospel, what he saw was that these individuals had the potential of being so much more than an enemy. Instead, what he saw is that they had the potential of becoming family. I like this statement. I think it's helpful for us that unexpected unity amidst diversity is possible because of the gospel. Pastor Jim, during one of our prayer meetings recently, I hope you'll join us on those if you haven't had the privilege of doing that. They've been great. One of the things he talked about is that the gospel can function as an emulsifier. I mentioned it last week. Now, uh, maybe a good example of this, we talked about it there, is that it was natural peanut butter. Anybody here like natural peanut butter? The all natural kind? You guys know the ones with like the 
inch of oil and then the stuff that you guys know what I'm talking about. So, so the all natural peanut butter doesn't have the emulsifier that's common in the, the smooth peanut butter that probably has all kinds of bad stuff in it for us, right? But, but what it, it, it's, it's separated, it's isolated. And, and what that emulsifier does when it's mixed together is it makes it homogenous. And what we see happening in this, in this time period in the church is that these people were separated, isolated. They were divided. They were divided by their culture. They were divided by their history. They were divided by hate. They were divided by sin. And what, allows, what God allows to take place in the history of the church is that there was an individual, Philip, who understood that the gospel is the great unifier. And he comes and he sees these people not as enemies, but he sees them as potential family members, glorifiers of God. And he humbly comes in. He miraculously communicates the truth of the gospel. And do you see what it ends in, in verse eight, how it ends in this context? Is that, that it ends with a statement that they were filled with great joy. I just love that statement. It's so encouraging for me to see the way that this played out because they were like oil and water, separated, isolated. And then the gospel comes in and Philip understands the power of the gospel and he shares it to them. Now, Philip himself had experienced some of the pain of being isolated and from a different culture, didn't completely know the language and was in an unfamiliar territory. And here God chooses to use him miraculously to be an agent of hope, a messenger of the gospel, a person who brings the privilege of being family in the midst of great pain and discouragement. I love the fact that Philip was somebody who had only been a believer for a short time, that he was a man who was just described as having great character, but God chooses to use him to be a great unifier that was in a time in history when there was great separation and division. I want to take a moment to share with you this morning something that's been heavy on my heart through the events that have been happening in our country over the last few months. As we've watched the, the, the division that's, that's really hit our country in all different ways, whether it's been political, whether it's been, been racial, there's been something that the Lord has continually challenged me in and something that I want to challenge you in today as well. As we read this passage of scripture, we're reminded of the fact that even somebody who initially was divided through the work of the gospel, there can be unity that can come from that. That it's possible that through the gospel, we can find the ability to call one another brothers and sisters. I love that that same man in, the, in James, James who was described as being one of the guys who wanted to call down from heaven flames upon this group of people that he despised. He would say this in James chapter 1, 19. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. One of the things that I'm praying for in my own life and what I'm praying for for Hope Church is as, as our nation continues to go through a season of division, as there's racial disunity, there's struggles that we're having understanding one another, one of the commitments that I'm making personally in my own life is to, to pay attention to the fact that I have two ears and one mouth, that it's appropriate for me at this time in life to listen and to take the time to hear. And, and one African-American pastor that's a part of the Christian Missionary Alliance 
last week, I heard him say these words. His name's Ron Morrison. He's a mentor to me. He's a wonderful man. He said that, that we often quote the truth that's recorded in the book of Micah 6.8. In fact, in my weekly emails, I've included it probably two out of the last three. This, this statement that you've heard before in different ways. It's, it's a powerful statement. It says this. It says, he has told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And then he went on to say something that was really important for me to hear. What he said is, I think that most of us, we, we like the idea of justice. But, but what God's word says here is that we do justice. And, it, and it's humbling for me because I accept the fact that in my own life, as I look at my own history, my own story, my own experience, that there's things that I can look back on and that I can say, they haven't always led towards unity. I've stood in pulpits where I preach, where at one time in history, an African-American could not have preached in that pulpit because of some of the decisions that were made during tragic times in the history of the church. It grieves me. Somebody has said this, that, that the truth of God's word, the truth of scripture, if it's the text without its context, it can be a pretext for you to, get to, to say whatever you want it to say. And tragically, in the history of the church in America, there have been times where people have abused scripture to defend something that falls way short. One man says it, I think he says it very well. He says, we don't have a skin problem in America, but we have a sin problem in America. And historically, there have been times in our history where people have been chosen to be separated, isolated, or even oppressed because of the color of their skin. And I, I stand up and, and I say, as a Christ follower, that that's not just something that is wrong, but it completely goes against what God's word teaches. That it teaches that every human being was created in the image of God. But, but what do we do about that? How do we respond to that? How do we, well, I'll just share with you what my commitment is in my own life. Is that my commitment in my life today is to do more listening in this area than it is to talk. It's to, to be humble. I, I like the way that those words are, are spoken in James 1.19, that it is to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I also want to be a person who recognizes the value of human life, that recognizes that God created all of us as image bearers of the living God. And you know what that does is that it elevates the work of the gospel in my life. It helps me to understand that the gospel can bring unprecedented, unexpected unity amidst diversity because of what the gospel does on our behalf. I look at my own life and I look at our country right now and I grieve some of the division and the disunity that's a part of our country. But what I also recognize is that I believe that I have a privilege to be a part of taking it seriously and striving to recognize the gospel being the great unifier, that an individual can go from looking completely different from one another to being brother and sister. That's my prayer. I believe this is what God is calling us to be as a church, a great unifier of the gospel, to see the gospel changing everything in our lives. I want to remind you this morning that in our country, in the world that we live in, it may not feel today like God is in control, but he's in control. 
you know, my story that I shared about my car and in the, the moments after that, I, I forgot to share with you that right before my car caught on fire that had everything that we had in it, we, the stuff was okay. The, the trailer, I didn't have a car that I could tow the, that with. My brother had called me the day before and he had said, hey, I was looking at purchasing a vehicle on eBay, a pickup truck. Would you be interested in that? And we said, oh, no, we're going to rent a U-Haul and carry it across the country. And so after my car caught on fire, after we, we took it to the junkyard, I called my brother up. He ended up purchasing that car. We drove it back to Ohio. And it's a long story, but each step of the way, there was just these unique things that had happened that it ended up leading to a vehicle that that, that replaced, that we drove to the Bahamas, that we were able to sell and able to purchase a vehicle. And the Lord just provided for us amazingly. And I look back on that story and it makes me emotional thinking about it because God showed his intimate handiwork in my life at a moment when, by the way, we had just taken off comprehensive insurance on that car like three days before. So we had, we, it was just one of those painful moments. The thing catches on fire. God, have you forgotten us? And then just, just within hours, he begins to continue to show himself faithful. He, he knows our needs that, that the main point of this morning, if you've been tracking with me, is that, is that even in the midst of times where it feels like God is not in control, that he's intimately involved in the details of our life. And he can actually use those very experiences to do great things on our behalf. And I think that's what God was doing on behalf of the early church. And I believe for you and I, if we're people that understand what it means to be a part of a God that loves us, to be a part of his story, to come under his care, to admit and understand that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, then even in the midst of great difficulties, great struggles, things that are discouraging, frustrating, that seem hopeless, that, that our God is still in control and we can experience true hope. Friends, that's what I'm praying for you today. I'm praying for you that in, this, in this, this understanding of God's unstoppable movement, that you would understand that that is the way that he feels about you. He loves you so much that he first wants to see a work of the gospel radiate within your life, to see you move from death to life, to understand hope and what that means for you personally. And I want to challenge you Today, I've chosen to live my life understanding that I'm not in control, but the, the king of the universe, the, the king of kings, the Lord of the lords, Lord of lords, the one who died on the cross for my sins, that, that I can commit my life to him and serve him completely. And there's no shame in that if I place my trust in, in him. And as I've done that in my life, what I've experienced is the blessing of understanding what it means to be a child of God. And I, I want to challenge you today. For some of us, we may be tuning in or we may be sitting here in this room and we have understood that that faith is grandma's faith. That's somebody else's story. That's their, their, the thing that God's done for them. And I think that today it's time to allow us to make this personal. There was an unstoppable movement that God was doing. And I think it is time for us to recognize as we study these verses in Acts chapter eight, that it's time for us to get on board with what God's doing. And what he can do is he can take things that are separated, that are broken, that are isolated, and he can allow them to become something new. It's my story. It's what he did in my life. And it's what I pray that he would do on your behalf. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for your word. I thank you for Philip, a man who 
was used by you to be a source of great encouragement to an entire group of people that love the way that that, that section ends, that, that there is just joy in that community. And I, I pray for Brunswick, I pray for Medina, I pray for the community, Strongsville, the, the areas that are around us. And I just want to thank you for, for our community. I want to thank you that you placed us here in this place. And Lord, as we look around us, we recognize that our country, our world is in a time period of great distress, discouragement, frustration. People have been isolated. People have also experienced great pain. And I, I want to thank you, Lord, for the access to your gospel that moves us from death to life, that has the potential of unifying the most distant of people and, and doing so not because of our commonalities, but because of your provision. Lord, I pray for us as a church family that we would be people who obey your leadership in our life. Lord, that we, we recognize that even when it feels like everything is broken, Lord, that you're sovereign, that you're good, that your love endures forever, that you're faithful. You know our needs more than what we do. And I pray for each person that's hearing my voice today that they would be reminded that the very God that did miracles in Samaria so many years before, the very God that allowed people who were sick to be whole, the very God that allowed people who had not had access to the message of hope or given it through the hands of this man, that that God loves them perfectly, that he knows the numbers of the hairs on their heads. He knows their needs. He knows their fears. He knows their dreams. And and Lord, that I pray that at this moment, they would be reminded of your voice. And that voice would be one of deep encouragement and also deep calling. Lord, we embrace as a church family that we are not on a cruise ship, that this isn't a joy cruise, that we're just, just making it from one port to the next and our comfort and enjoyment is what this is all about. But we accept that we're in the midst of a great difficult battle, but one that uh, we thank you that you're in control of, Lord, that you're faithful, that you know our needs more than what we do. And we ask that as we strive to join those disciples in obedience to you, uh, to not forget the things that are most precious and important, at times to approach difficult decisions with great courage and confidence, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. We love you. We thank you for your word. Pray that you would maintain your promise to us that it would not return void. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.